0: That morning 22 years ago, um, my first ever sermon was on this passage, 22 years later, I'm still not sure quite what's going on, so let's um, let's pray, let's listen to St. Augustine on this passage, he writes, this is profound, he says, I admit that the meaning of this completely escapes me, um, which means as always we need to come in humility to God's word and so let's pray for his help as we look at these verses together. Let's ask him for help. Father in heaven, we thank you that you promise that your word, as it goes out from you, will accomplish what you purpose. And so we pray as we look at these verses together this morning, you would be at work in us and among us. We long that you might soften our hearts, that you might open our blind eyes, unstop our deaf ears, that we might see more of who you are. But more than that, that we might love you, and so live lives that bring you glory. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. If you were here last week, you might remember we started off by reminiscing about an advert from the 1980s for the Yellow Pages. Um, A young lad needs to get on with it because his parents are getting home from holiday that morning, and he's had a party that probably he wasn't meant to have, and the place is a mess. What does he do? He gets on with it. He gets ready. Because when you know what the future holds, so you know what matters now. You know what's really important. But we hypothesized last time, what if he found his parents weren't coming back? What if they'd been delayed? What if they'd changed their plans? What if, what if they were staying away for a longer period? What does he do then? Well, you're not going to bother tidying, are you? You're not going to get the French antique experts to come and deal with the table. You're going to put the telly on. You'll make breakfast, perhaps making a fry-up for your new friends who are asleep in your house. You might go back to bed. You might get some more sleep. So it's striking in 2 Thessalonians that Paul is writing to a church who are muddled about the return of the Lord Jesus. And so that means they are muddled about what they ought to be doing now, the kind of things that really matter now. See, it turns out they think that Jesus has already come in some way. You get that in verse 2. And that's then worked out in chapter 3. So let me skip ahead. It's from a couple of weeks' time, but we'll steal some thunder. Um, Chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul says to them, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how we ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And yet it seems they've forgotten this teaching. They've been deceived. They think the Lord has already come back in some way, and so they, well, why bother, they say. Guys, let's just freewheel. Let's just take it easy. Let's wait for everything to be wrapped up and we can put our feet up. And so Paul wants to come and untangle some of that muddled thinking. I think there are two things at least that he wants to remind us from our 12 verses this morning. Um, The first one is know when we are, verse 1 to 4. If you're taking notes, know when we are, verse 1 to 4. Know who's in charge, verse 5 to 12. But firstly, know when we are. Verse 1 to 4. And the honest answer is we don't quite know why they've got muddled. Maybe, as we read in Acts 17, maybe it was that Paul and the crew had to leave quickly from this newly planted church. There were persecution from the Jews. He and his team have to leave sharpish. You can read about it. The opposition rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, started a riot in the city. And so Paul and Silas, they have, to, they have to leave quickly under cover of darkness. Maybe that meant Paul hadn't been able to teach them all the stuff that he wanted. They hadn't completed the syllabus, although it, maybe they hadn't been able to press it in because it sounds like he's covered this already and he's surprised that they've forgotten. Maybe that was part of it. They're a young church, a baby church. Maybe they're confused because of that. More than that, it seems that there have been some letters arriving, though. Letters with authority even that claim to have come from Paul. You get that in verse 2. He talks about a a prophecy, a word of mouth, or a letter. It's striking, actually. Chapter 2, in one sense, is a story of two teachings. You've got verse 2, what Paul says there, or doesn't say compared that with verse 15 so verse 2 paul says ignore it it's not from me verse 15 we'll see that next week he says hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you whether by word of mouth or a letter you've got these two teachings one false one true ignore the false one says paul this week next week hold on to the true maybe they thought that there would be persecution, and then Jesus would return. You saw last week that they were being persecuted, verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1. They were facing hard times they were, because they were being faithful, and it's hurting. They had lost friends and standing and status, perhaps. And so maybe in, in their mind there's a sign that because of the persecution, Jesus is so close to coming back that why bother now? In some sense, it's already happened. We're not quite sure. Paul's response though is this, you won't miss it when he comes. He will come and you won't miss it when he does. Jesus said he would come like a thief in the night, but he also said there would be signs before he did. It's not as if he's just going to arrive unawares and we might miss him. Have a look at 3 and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, it's clear there are going to be signs. What those signs will actually be, a bit less clear perhaps why is jesus not yet returned why can we be sure of that well paul says because the rebellion to occur and the man of lawlessness to re- be revealed have not yet happened now the first one is a bit easier the rebellion against the faith that will precede the lord's return that comes up elsewhere in the bible we get that in places like matthew 24 for example from the lips of jesus at that time that is just before the return of Jesus, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Things will get worse for a time before things get better forever, says Jesus, says Paul. But what about this man of lawlessness? Hmm. More complex, less understood. You can imagine the internet is not a Not a clever place to go um, for this kind of thing. There are theories and crazy ideas. I wouldn't bother. What do we know? Well, it seems that there's a human implied. This is a person rather than Satan. And this word lawlessness that we get a few times through the passage, it, it captures ideas of disobedience against God. And while it might sound quite scary... You can be reassured that his power is short-lived. So verse 3, he is ultimately doomed to destruction. In his kindness, God is warning us what will come. He wants to forewarn and so prepare his people. Part of the complexity, I think, with the passage is that Paul seems to be drawing on Daniel 11, um, which is... The apocalyptic second half of Daniel, it's the bit that churches normally try and avoid. You just kind of stop at chapter 6. If you'd like to go to the church website, we did all of Daniel a couple of years ago. Um, Evening service, if you weren't around for that. But there, in chapter 11, God tells Daniel that there will be a king in the future who will, who will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. And if you compare that then to verse 4 of our passage this morning, the man of lawlessness will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Deliberate parallels, it seems. Similar language that Paul uses. Is it a literal temple? Verse 4. Possibly, but probably not, I would say. I don't think God has a literal temple now, apart from the church, but again, more probably this is apocalyptic language, showing that there will be one who, who sets himself up against God, who opposes God, even at, perhaps even at the heart of where God is worshipped. If the temple is the church, then maybe we need to ask questions, even perhaps among his faithful people. It's an evil that attempts to deny both the reality and the power of God. A couple of things that just strike me about this idea in one sense this sounds a bit weird is there an individual who will come and do this kind of stuff who is that individual how will they set themselves up but one thing that strikes me is we are currently not without those who set themselves up in the place of God We are currently not without those who seek to destroy the faith of believers, who seek to belittle those with faith, whether it be particular individuals or particular states or governments proclaiming themselves to be God. It's not at all far from the reality that many of our brothers and sisters today will be facing around the world. And of course, more than that as well, we live in a world of worship and glory, where, where we long for followers and likes and people to, to click the button on our posts, where states and governments demand it sometimes. So regardless of those questions about who this individual is, if it is an individual, it seems to me the spirit at work behind that individual is clearly alive and active in our day. So whilst it might sound kind of crazy and a bit strange and a bit wacky, in another sense, it's just very normal. It's reality. Which leads us on to the second observation, and that is, that is a something at the very nature of sin to set ourselves up in opposition to God, to want to be in charge. He was there in the garden at the beginning with Adam and Eve, they they thought they knew better than god that they wanted to be like god sin is is shoving god off the throne trying to clamber on ourselves and say we shouldn't be surprised if there's a rebellion described or personified as one who sets themselves up against god it's it's a profoundly natural thing for us as people who have walked out on god and so thessalonians says paul Know when you are. Remember the story. Remember Jesus will return. And when you remember where you sit in the reality of the story, you can make sense of life and you know what matters. You know what to fill your days with. Because you know what's coming. Which of course is true for us, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I can be so forgetful. I get so muddled about this. Our our little stories, what fills our days and our weeks, become so all-consuming that we just think, if I can just get through to lunch, or just get through to the evening, just get through to the weekend, just get through to the next holiday, and we forget to tell ourselves the big story. We get so all-consumed with the little stories of our lives that we forget the big story. And then we get muddled. And so we're confused by the world. And Maybe we should not forget that we should expect things to get harder before Jesus comes back. It seems to me that is clear from Scripture. Or even the need to remember that he is coming back. Because that's pretty easy to forget as well, isn't it? But as we saw last week, he he will put everything right. Justice will be seen. This is not all there is. And so keep going, says Paul. Know when we are. But more than that, verse 5 to 12, know who's in charge. And you're at the park, and you're playing frisbee with the kids. And this little yappy dog comes charging towards you, growling and barking and jumping just like they do. And actually, it seems pretty vicious, this one. It's not looking for a stroke, it's looking for meat. And you're not quite sure what to do next, are you? Is it acceptable to kick a small dog? (laughs) Probably not. Can you run? It looks pretty quick. Offer it a snack? Wouldn't do that in our times in East Oxford. Maybe it's got dietary issues. Maybe it's (laughs) gluten-free. What do you do with this thing charging towards you? Ah you realize it's all okay. But coming around the corner, there's an old lady with a long lead. And she hurries after the creature, calling up, Tiddles or something. And she presses the button and the dog pauses and the dog rewinds back to her. <laughs> in a funny way, that's kind of the truth at the heart of this second half of the passage. That is, we're not to be afraid of what's to come because God is in charge. Thessalonians, Magdalene Road, God is in charge. And yes, Satan for a time is given some freedom, and of course there is mystery there. There will be questions. But know that even though he has some freedom, he is not a free agent. He's, He's on a lead. God is still in charge. However out of control the world might look, now or in the future god is still in charge you get it in verse 9 the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how satan works he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie see the link between this lawless one who will come whoever that might be and satan he, he sits behind in accordance with how Satan works, impressive and alluring may be, even aping how God does things. As Satan always does, he's never able to create, he always has to copy. Always has to take something good and make it bad. And yet God's sovereignty, the fact that he's still in charge, is seen in a number of ways in this second half. Firstly, in verse 6, I take it it is God who is holding him back. This one, whoever it may be, will come at the proper time. To slightly stretch the image too far, he's currently in the kennel. But for a time, on the leash, will be allowed out. You get it as well, I think, with this mysterious power of lawlessness, um, which is there too. Uh, Already at work, again, crazy internet conspiracies, but limited in power because restrained by God. As one commentator put it, though, all speculations about later applications to one's own present realities, whether it be Luther's to the Pope or 20th century North Americans to Hitler or Russian communism, are are idle speculations. From our best distance, the best position would seem to be wait and see. God is restraining evil now, says Paul. But when the lawless one is revealed, God will defeat evil. And so verse 8. When the lawless one is revealed, him the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. We've thought already this morning of the, the power of God's word. The power of the word of Jesus. And if those words feel familiar... Um, I think Paul is riffing off Isaiah 11 here. Isaiah 11 verse 4. He's speaking of of Jesus, one from the root of Jesse, who is marked by righteousness and by justice. Um, Isaiah says this. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. So you see the power of the word and God, the word of God to be able to create and transform but also the power of the word of God to judge and to destroy. Put yourself in the shoes of the Thessalonians at this point. Just imagine it for a moment. You you no doubt feel pretty small, pretty fragile, a baby church. The surrounding culture, the surrounding city looming large over you. And you're facing hard times in a way because you're, you're being faithful, as we saw last week, verse 3 and 4. You know what's coming, and so you try and live now in a way that's appropriate. Maybe you've lost family, business, friends, status, standing. You're thinking, oh, this is pretty tough. It's pretty tough to keep living for Jesus. Maybe, maybe if I'm honest, I need to hedge my bets a bit. I'm tempted to wave the white flag and call it a day, or at least to tone things down. And then Paul comes and says, it's going to be okay. Remember the power of the Lord Jesus. It's going to be okay. It's not that the plan has failed, it's just that the plan is not finished. Be patient, keep trusting. He's in charge now, and he will come back and you will see that. So keep going. We need to cover the idea of the coming back of the Lord Jesus again. And we said last week it's a hard thing for us to get our, our minds around at times, or even our hearts excited by, it because we want justice. But then we find ourselves nervous in wanting that justice, because we know how powerful and how perfect God is. And that will be, there will be implications for us when Jesus returns is there in verse 1, it's how the passage kicks off, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming back, says Paul. And yet ours is a God who loves to save people. The image we used last time was the graphic images of, of um, the Australian bushfires. Do you remember the warning bells telling you that fire is coming? The app buzzing, the phone ringing, TV screens, everything telling you, get out of there, find refuge. Not Not because it's a hobby, not because it's a lifestyle choice, not just to make your life a bit better, but simply because you need to be safe. Well, so we said the same is true for believers. The reality of justice coming is like that bushfire. Jesus is not just friend, brother, teacher, He, he will be judge as well. And we said the weird way to be safe in a bushfire was actually to take refuge in a place that's already be bur- been burned. Do you remember? It means you get this extraordinary thing where you, you know fire is coming, perhaps a day away towards your house, and what do you do around your village or your house or your town? You, the, f- the huge fire comes, but you've already had a fire around your property. And you shelter there. It's safe now. that The fire has already burnt. Which means for the believer in Jesus, we're simply sheltering in a place where judgment has already fallen. God's judgment has already been served, not by his people, but by his king, but by the judge himself. We're not better. We're simply forgiven. We're trusting in his death for us, we're taking refuge. And you see, when Paul says in verse 10, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, that is, they're not willing to stand on the already burnt ground. And we kind of get that. We kind of get that, but then verse 11 and 12, and we're left scratching our heads. So for this reason, God sends them, a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and say that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. And it sounds wrong to us. God's going to send a powerful delusion. But I think Paul is just saying God gives them what they want. They, They don't want him. Well, there comes a time when they won't have him. They they can't have him. It's very sobering, isn't it? They refuse to love the truth. Okay, God ends up helping them with that, actively shutting the door on them, removing them. It's like the um, football transfer window. There's a limited time when you can change teams, and it's possible to be too late. And yet, of course, this is far more sobering and far more important. And we said last time, we we long for justice, we cry out for justice. But as we do that, that means dealing with people. And so it gets personal. So friends, I want to say, if you're here... And you wouldn't call yourself a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or you're not quite sure, maybe you're just looking in on Christian things. Maybe you've come for years and actually you know that you're, you're not really a follower of Jesus. Can I urge you to take refuge in the Son, please? I say this carefully, but God's patience with you is not infinite. God's patience is not infinite. One day he will return and the door will shut. And I say this carefully, but the danger can be we keep putting it off and we keep putting it off and we keep putting it off we think, wow, I just need to live a bit first. Maybe on my deathbed, maybe that's the time when I will turn to Jesus. And yet passages like this remind us, wow, what what makes you think you're in charge? What if you won't want to turn to him on your deathbed? And anyway, how do you know when your deathbed is? What if, in our hard-heartedness even, the Lord closes the door, the transfer window shuts, and it's too late? What makes you think you get to choose him? Maybe you know it's true. Maybe you've chewed these things over. Maybe you're counting the cost. You're weighing things. Maybe even you are planning for the deathbed conversion. Can I urge you to trust Jesus now? Take refuge in him now. Receive that gift of grace from him now. And if that's you, come and chat to me afterwards. I'd love to speak to you.. I want to say as well, for those of us who are trusting Christ, who are stood on the scorched earth, taking refuge in the Son, forgiven through His grace, thankful, can I say keep going? Keep going. Because Oxford might well loom large. And it does, doesn't it? And in our lifetime, things might well get harder. They really might. I don't think I'm just being a pessimist here. They're harder now for brothers and sisters around the world, even this morning. But, but can I say, keep going. One day, the plan will be finished. Justice will be seen. But until then, know when we are, and know who is in charge, and keep trusting him. Let me pray. Lord, we confess to you that we we can find passages like this confusing, we can find them scary... And yet we pray that you would help us, help us, help us please to know when we are, help us to to remember the story, help us to remember Jesus is coming back, and so to live in the light of that reality. Thank you that we know what is coming and so we know what matters. And help us please to keep trusting that you're in charge. We pray for brothers and sisters around the world today for whom this is This is very real and very painful. And we ask that you would help them to keep trusting you. To keep standing on that scorched earth. Even though it might be painful, even though it might be costly. We pray that you would help them as you would help us. To keep our eyes fixed on you. Thank you that you forewarn us so that we might be forearmed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.